This is Bucket Talk, a weekly podcast for people who work in the trades and construction that aren't just trying to survive, but have the ambition and desire to thrive. The opportunity in the trades and construction is absolutely ridiculous right now. So if you're hungry, it's time to eat. We discuss what it takes to rise from the bottom to the top with people who are well on their way and roll up their sleeves every single day. This is Jeremy and Eric here with Bucket Talk, powered by Brunt. This week, we're going to take a week off, spend time with family. It's Thanksgiving week, and we're going to re-air Anne of All Trades, an oldie but goodie podcast. But before we jump into that, Eric, what's been going on? Oh, man. So with this week approaching, you know, from my perspective and the Brunt perspective, it's been nonstop planning for the past realistically few months, but really intense for the past few weeks. Obviously, Thanksgiving week's a big week for the business. And we've actually got our Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals coming up. And, you know, we're not a brand that really ever discounts or or does anything of that nature because our pricing is so sharp, but this is the one time of the year. And so tonight, technically Tuesday night at midnight, we're turning on our Black Friday deals where you can not only get $10 off pretty much every pair of boots, but we also have a limited edition all blacked out brunt beanie. So that'll be exciting for the next few days. And then we're also dropping a limited edition all blacked out version of our Marin boot. So I'm excited. So once it sells out, it's gone. It's not like we're going to restock it and maybe we'll do it again next year, next Black Friday, but this is it. So it's been crazy, crazy, crazy. No sleep, no nothing, but we're almost past the finish line. Excited to hopefully spend some time with family. What do you got coming up, dude? What's Dude, I have Barnes Giving. So we're going to put on a Thanksgiving for all of the boarders in the barn. We're going to have a huge party. Hopefully we don't blow out any windows. I, you know, I'm not in the market of replacing windows, but it's going to be a ripper and we're going to have everybody that rides horse at our stable and and their friends come over to the house and tear it up for a night. And it's kind of our, you know, thank you for being such loyal people to our barn. A lot of them have helped out with chores and, and what have you. So this is our give back. We appreciate them as clients. And I'm super pumped to just kind of rub elbows with some of the people that I work with daily. Because it's your business, it's a dry Thanksgiving, right? This party is there's Hell no alcohol. No, dude. Maine has different <laughs> has different rules, man. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm I'm super pumped. And to be honest with you, I love this episode. So we're super pumped to give you Anne of All Trades. All right. Hey guys, I'm here with Anne of All Trades. First thing I'd like to say is thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, dude. I'm stoked to be here. <laughs> so uh, you are a woodworker and organic farmer, along with many other hats you wear, correct? That is correct. Uh, give us a little background, you know, who you are, where you live, and how'd you get here today? That could be a very long story, but I'll try to shorten <laughs> it up as much as possible. Uh, but I'm currently in Nashville, Tennessee. We actually just moved here a couple months ago from Seattle, Washington, Prior to that, I was living in Taipei, Taiwan, and prior to that, I was living in Beijing, China, Um, and a lot of people stop at those points and want to know more, but basically, my parents have been full-time missionaries for the last 40-ish years. They were part of a missions organization that was also like basically an intentional living community, and so I had a really cool upbringing getting to live all over the world with a group of people that were really invested in intentional relationship, Mm -hmm. which is really, really rad. Um, That's kind of um, 
you know, I got exposed to a lot of different cultures and a lot of different things as a kid. And um, I've had a vast uh, array of interests over the years as a result. And that kind of basically led me to what I'm currently doing with the Anival Trades thing is basically giving a uh, name to my utter and complete lack of direction and uh, short attention span. Well, I mean, and that and that's funny because, you know, I, I think I'll speak for a lot of people in the trades is, you know, I had a short attention span and hence why I'm a mechanic because, you know, then every job that rolls in is different. So, you know, it's good to do a job, complete it and get it out and work on the next thing. So I'm constantly moving, constantly, you know, figuring it out. But what made you what made you get to where you are today? I mean, it's it's, it's a pretty unique path you took in. And there had to have been some sort of, um, some sort of, I, I don't know, something behind it anyway. Yeah, well, I struggled a lot in school. I have a couple of learning disabilities, and also I was pretty badly bullied when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Plus, we traveled all the time. And so uh, my schooling was very, very non-traditional. When we were in the States and it worked okay, I would go to public school and from you know, for certain time periods, my parents would pull me out of school for various reasons. And during one of those longer periods, uh, my, my parents were homeschooling me and I, they started taking me to this place called the heritage place, which was like basically a living history museum Mm -hmm. where you could, you could like use old tools and you could churn butter and, you know, basically just see and experience firsthand what it was like to live, you know, in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s. And that then pretty much sparked an absolute fascination for that time period for me, paired with the fact that my grandfather was a woodworker and a mechanic and a jack of all trades. And, uh, you know, we didn't get to see them a ton when I was a kid, but he definitely was probably the biggest influencer on my young life as far as just I, I have vivid memories of spending a lot of time in his shop and tinkering around with his tools. And he trusted me with his tools and would let me, you know, do do things. He, he would teach me how to safely use them and then allow me to use them. And so, I mean, as a kid, I just kind of rose to the challenge and I loved working with my hands. And again, we didn't get to spend a ton of time with them. Um, and he did pass away when I was really young. So it was kind of at the back of my mind always from um, you know, from that living history museum and my experience with my grandfather that someday if I ever lived in America, I wanted to have my own farm and I wanted to have my own workshop where I could do and fix anything that I wanted. And so, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, many, many years, um, when I moved to, when I moved from Taiwan to Seattle, that was the first time in my life that I had disposable time and a garage. And so even though I was dead broke, I bought a bunch of tools on Craigslist, um, you know, basically broken tools for rock bottom prices. And I would take them apart and figure out how they worked, figure out how I could fix them. Then I'd turn around and sell them for a profit. And that's basically, I, I traded up over and over and over again to get a working tool set that I could actually use in my garage there to build the and fix and tinker with the things that I wanted to. And I had... At that time, I was working in tech. I had no intention of ever, you know, doing all this stuff for a living. But the more tools that I acquired and the more um, hand skills that I learned, the more passionate about it I got and the more dissatisfied with my job that I got, 
And I basically realized then that I wanted to figure out a way out of that lifestyle. So foolishly, I got into woodworking and I started building some pieces of furniture. And I think I got that early confidence that a lot of young woodworkers do. And I was like, oh, like, you know, I could totally do this. And so I quit my job (laughs) prematurely and completely failed as a furniture maker. I realized that basically turning that aspect of, of, of something that I really loved into a business that I relied on for my income took all of the excitement and all of the passion away from me because I like, I don't care about money. So I wasn't necessarily motivated by the money and it, it like all the romance of, of just being self-employed and, and building, spending all my time in my shop was kind of robbed by all of the administrative work that I hadn't really considered that I would need to do, like, it was funny, I quit my job working in tech because I wanted to spend less time working at the computer. But then all of a sudden I had to figure out how to make a website and I had to become my own accountant and I had to market my stuff and I had to send invoices and all those things that like took all this computer time. And suddenly I was actually in the shop even less. So I, after basically settling into a very, very deep depression, and letting a whole bunch of potential clients down, I decided to go back to work, but with the intention of figuring out my next way out. So I went back to work for a couple of years, continued to build my skill sets. By happenstance, I um, started accidentally posting pictures on Instagram, <laughs> and I met a really cool group of really talented craftspeople that really helped to encourage and champion me. And by like a series of, of happy coincidences, I ended up getting a job running a woodworking program at a, at, at a fine arts center. And so that was basically my ticket into doing this full-time for a living again. And through that, they basically needed someone to revamp their entire education program So I got to hire new teachers and write new course curriculum. And basically, I created the woodworking school that I always wished that I had been able to attend and then used that job to attend it. During that whole time, I was building my online business and still definitely wanting to go full time on my own again, just with a very different path. And I did. Three years later, on January 1st, 2018, I quit my job. And I've been doing this insanity ever since. That's awesome. I mean, that's actually incredibly inspirational. You know, I know for for a lot of, of people in in you know our our generation, um, I've had a few buddies that have had you know just in their thirties decided that they weren't going to wrench anymore and they went off to be a plumber. And I think you know it takes a lot of guts to do what you did instead of going through the motions every day to to really. Uh, fulfill what, what you wanted to do. And, you know, through hard work and everything, you, you made it a lucrative, uh, trade. So, uh, to, to move along, I mean, uh, what's a day in the life of Anne of all trades? Well, funnily enough. So, I mean, I've talked a lot about this other places too, but I struggle pretty greatly with, um, anxiety and depression. Yeah. And so I had to work Like knowing that I was going to be self-employed, I had to work some kind of external forced routine into my lifestyle, um, routine and accountability, because I mean, left to my own devices, 
I'll be good for a long time and I'll, I'll be on a creative streak and I'll be really productive and things will go great. And then I'll hit some kind of hiccup or some kind of roadblock or have some kind of like personal sadness that'll just trigger a pretty negative stream of events. So anyway, all that to say that five years ago, I decided that I wanted to finally realize my dream of having an organic farm. And so with that, I was going to use the organic farm to force myself into a some sort of semblance of a routine. And so even though, you know, woodworking was kind of my main squeeze and all that stuff, the farm ironically actually takes up a whole lot more time than my woodworking does. And I, I, I wasn't that good at showing that on social media for a really long time because I do really like to encourage people to do the things that they love. And I mean, I mean, quite frankly, I think it's just like the nature of social media that you always show like the, the good parts and not necessarily the hard parts. But those first few years on the farm were pretty tough because, A, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, like the funniest thing about that routine thing that I was telling you about is I, I realized that I needed not only to have animals that I had to feed because like an animal's not going to starve to death in one day. If I'm really depressed <laughs> and I like, you know, can't like go out and feed them like they're not going to. But I realized like an animal that you have to milk, like you cannot leave it for more than 12 hours without being milked. And so I realized quite early on that, like, you know, I was going to need to have an animal that I milked every day, something that really counted on me for a specific time, a specific start and a specific end to my day. So I started, so I got a milk goat, but I had not milked anything since I was a kid. I didn't know anything about it. Like funnily enough. And I mean, only people who have ever milked anything will think that this is nearly as funny as it is, but I just literally like got this goat and brought it home and um, just like assumed that it would just stand there and let me milk it. <laughs> and so I like, you know, went out there like proudly with my little milk pail that first time and like bent down to squeeze that little teat and I got kicked in the face oh, and she ran away. And like basically what followed was like eight hours of me chasing her around, like getting about a quarter of a teaspoon of t at a time of milk it was just a disaster. And then like, you know, I humbly with like scraped up knees and like filthy and from head to toe, like went inside and like Googled like how to milk a goat. And then I found <laughs> out you had to build like a goat milking stanchion and all this stuff. So anyway, you asked me what my days are like. <laughs> Sorry. So, no, and, and, and no, but I, I, I completely, um, I'm completely enthralled right now because, you know, I was a kid that at a young age was, uh, diagnosed in the nineties with ADHD. And my wife calls me zero to 60 Jeremy, because I can go from just being down in the doldrums to, you know, like nonstop on something. So I, I mean, you're definitely speaking to the right crowd of, of, uh, of people who have just, you know, it's been a tough road for us. It, it, it hasn't been easy, but we do have, you know, the ability to create a life for ourselves. That's, you know, absolutely magical and and seems like you're doing that and but yeah please you know continue with the, with a day in the life of Anne. now fast forward from that first goat milking disaster um by the way that goat and i did develop a beautiful relationship after i got the stanchion and tethers and all kinds of other things what was the what was um, the name maple maple Yes, she is. A, she is a sweetie. I actually, there's a longer story there, but I don't have her. <laughs> anyway, 
a day in my life is I wake up uh, at about six o'clock, five thirty, six o'clock, depending on you know what I have to actually do that morning, and I answer some emails and do some computery stuff in the warmth of my bed, which is actually honestly a horrible habit. I really need to break it, and I've been trying to get better at that, but it just is what it is right now. Yeah. And then I go down and I bring in the cows and milk my cow rib and milk entire. And she's in a, a local herd share program. So I milk her uh, with my partner, Tyler, and my milking partner, just to be clear. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Tyler has her own cow as well. And um, so she milks her cow. I milk mine. Then we clean all of the milking equipment and put the um, all the herd share orders. So we like filter the milk and and get everyone's order for the orders for the day. So that's like um, different people buy milk and yogurt and other products. And so we get those ready. We put them um, out in the because of covid, we have like this special like no contact drop off thing. So we put them out yeah. in the drop off fridge and then I go home and uh, st- well, I mean, you know, home, home, and uh, have some coffee and some breakfast, and then run back down to the barn and start taking care of all the other animals. I'm bottle feeding two lambs right now. We have a a baby goat that needs some special attention as well, Milk Dead. She's very cute. If you haven't seen her already, you definitely should check her out. (laughs) Hashtag Team Milk Dead. And then I also have 25 chicks in my brooder right now, and I have 10 laying hens that are like running amok in the barn because I haven't finished building my chicken coop yet because, you know, April 14th seemed like a really long time away when I first ordered them. And uh, shock of all shocks, that deadline came and went without a chicken coop. So anyway, they're just hanging out, ruining my life right now. (laughs) And then I feed the donkeys. I have two miniature donkeys that guard our flock, Howdy and Bella. And I feed the rest of the goats and change all the water buckets and muck out the barn And then I feed, uh, I just recently inherited, I have a no pet rule here on the farm, but my neighbor had this pig who's like really, really funny and cute. And she was like, had some major behavior problems. And so he couldn't keep her. And I was like, okay, well, bring her over. So now I have a pet pig named Lucy. Um, And so I feed her and, you know, just like wrestle around with all the baby animals for a little while. And then that brings us to about 8.39 a.m. And I walk into my office and do whatever computer work I need to do. I do. I use a, um, a system called Scrum Analysis to organize my time. So okay. if, you're ever, if, I, if you're ever like watching Instagram stories or lives or anything in the background, you can see these whiteboards that have like hundreds of sticky notes on them. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so I walk in, I organize my scrum system for the day and I like figure out what's what's my highest priorities what's reasonable for me to take off the board and to do that day and then I create like a basic schedule for the day and usually that involves like three or four hours of computer work three or four hours of project time and then all of that's constantly interrupted by feeding the lambs every couple hours yeah then that brings us to usually about six or seven run up to the house make dinner and then come back down and feed everyone one last time, shut up the barn and put everyone away. And that brings us to about 9.30. And then I go back up to the house and go to bed. That's, that's, it's, it sounds busy and fulfilling. Yeah, I love it. I mean, th- like, there, I mean, a lot of people say, you know, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And I honestly think that that's not really 
how it works. I mean, if it works for people, then that's amazing. But I think at the end of the day, even if you do what you love, there's certain aspects of it that are always going to be a job yeah. um, and things that are going to be work. But I mean, there's a reason that I turned my hobbies into my job. Like I, I enjoy like, even the work parts. Like there's a reward. Yeah. So, um, speaking of Lucy, my daughter's name is Lucy and, uh, I spend a lot of my time between my, my two children who are, who are very young and I want them to be able to work with their hands and be able to enjoy it. And I, and I don't necessarily think that, you know, the trades are right for them. It's way too early, but I do want to, you know, instill some sort of, you know, skill set or value that they can, they can take to wherever they want, whether it's hard work or, you know, early rising or even, you know, planting a garden and, and seeing it all the way, you know, to harvest your kids. Would you, would you wish this upon them or, or do you want to shy them away from the trades? I mean, if we're looking like financially speaking, it, the world is changing at an extremely rapid rate. It, like so much of our jobs, like, I mean, even the job that I used to do in tech has been completely outsourced now. And so, you know, what's funny is that the only thing that cannot be outsourced, like you can't have someone in India build you a fence. Yeah. You can't have someone in China, you know, diagnose your 1953 pickup truck over the phone. <laughs> and so like, the trades are really the only thing that's guaranteed. And, and the thing is a lot of my, a lot of my like craftiness right now has been really strongly influenced by my, my mentor, who's almost a hundred now. Um, but I spent a lot of time with him starting about six years ago. And he, I mean, like I said, I, when I met him, I think he was 90, 96 years old. And he had never in his life called a repairman. Even at 96, he was climbing up scaffolding that he made yeah. to blow the leaves off of the roof of his own house. And, like, literally there's, like, neighbors, like, screaming at him, like, to get down and, like, all this stuff. But, I mean, he had just never called it a repair repairman. I mean, there's – I mean, I even call repairman. I, like, even if I'm fully confident to fix something, there's a lot of things that I just, like, thankfully have the resources to now not have to do. Like, I mean – I started off dead broke and I had to go swimming in my septic tank five years ago to fix it. Cause I couldn't afford to call anyone. And thankfully that's no longer the case. I mean, I like, I hope that we have kids and I hope at the very least I'm going to teach them how to use tools and how to be confident in their own abilities or their own ability to figure things out, whether they, you know, want to do that for a living or not is completely up to them. It is really sad to me that, so few kids have the opportunity to experience making things with their hands because yeah. I mean, even me as a kid, like I wish I had more access to tools to figure things like just to have the opportunity to express myself more creatively, you know, with, with, with tools and with craft at a younger age, because a lot of that, you know, just like fine motor skills and stuff like that is, is so easy to develop at a young age, but is really, really hard to learn as an adult. Not to mention that kids, you know, fall down the stairs and trip and like fall and like they fail constantly and they're not nearly as afraid of failing as adults are. And so to get that confidence in yourself while you're like still fully available or fully able to fail, I think is, is such a gift. And so to provide kids with 
you know, the opportunity to, to learn and, and respect tools at an early age is really important. So I ask this question usually to um, people of a actual specific trade and seeing that you uh, span multiple trades, I'm going to address it more as a lifestyle than a trade, but do you see any unspoken trends or issues you're, you're seeing in your lifestyle or, or even the trade? Negative or positive? I would go with negative. Uh, epoxy pores? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you don't like the tables with the rocks on them? They're not my favorite. <laughs> I actually found them quite interesting. I, I mean, I was at a bar the other day. Well, not the other day, but over over the winter time, is at a ski resort, and uh, they had the whole bar. <laughs> like my kids thought it was interesting. I don't know. You know what? Here's the thing. I actually like. There's. I know some people that like that epoxy is their whole craft, and there yeah. is definitely a craft to it. The whole idea of just like getting two pieces of wood and pouring some plastic between it and screwing on some metal legs, like that's not craft, and like. You know, it just that that kind of stuff kind of bums me out. But if there is really like art artistry and skill involved in it. And I mean, at the end of the day, really any kind of creativity that's being expressed, like if someone makes it, you know, if if someone makes an epoxy pour table and that's the first thing that they've ever made and they like it and they're proud of it. Who the heck am I to say anything negative about it? Oh, absolutely. Um, But as far as like skilled craftsmen going, pouring plastic between two tables, that is a trend that I would be happy to see disappear. (laughs) So tell me about a cool builder project you've uh, done, been excited about. I'm sure you have actually a lot. And I did see the Democratic chair. That was uh, actually unbelievable to watch how much craftsmanship you put into that one chair. Thank you. Yeah. The funny thing is about that chair is that's the, that's like the whole point of that chair is that you use a really limited tool set and you use whatever woods available. And it also, it's like, it's the quote unquote easiest winter chair that can be made. I mean, it still involves a lot of, a lot of, you know, finesse and stuff um, and understanding of how it all goes together. But it is, it is one of the easier, easier ones, which is actually why I wanted to do it because I like quite simply just don't have time to make a full dining set of regular Windsor chairs. And my husband's really been complaining about having to sit on the floor to eat dinner. So I I wanted to make a set of chairs and I I really liked that design. So I think I'm going to make some of those. I am excited about that. I always like, like making chairs. I mean, my whole life is one big project right now. We just bought a new farm and it's like completely starting over. I don't have a workshop here, so I'm actually, I'm building one and I'm like really, really excited, but also really scared to take this on, but I'm um, about to build a 5,000 square foot shop here. Wow. And um, so that's, that's huge. Um, I'm hoping to run classes out of it. And so, yeah, it's, it's going to be quite the endeavor for sure. And so that's definitely one that one that's, you know, on the forefront of my mind currently. Don't take your skills with you, pass them along. I mean, it is key to to empower the younger generation and you know i like you said you have your mentor who's nearly 100 but i had i had a guy who i he moved to virginia he retired in virginia and i'm super bummed about it but he you know taught me everything from sharpening the teeth on a chainsaw to uh hand making bowls out of wood he was a wood turner but he was he was a guy that 
you'd go, Hey, I need firewood. And he goes, come on, we'll go up to the dump. Just basic stuff. You know, just go up to the dump and, and get that. Or he'd, you know, he'd say, Hey, you know, we had <laughs> roadkill. You know, if you get it, if you get it in, in, uh, in November and you get on the list, you can get a deer right off the bat. We'll come over and butcher it. And so it was, it was small tips like that, that would actually, you know, make your life cheaper and, and more fulfilling. And I think that's, that's amazing to, to pass those skills on. So I, you know, I'm actually proud of you for start, potentially starting a, um, a classroom. That's amazing. You, you, so you, you said with the, with the chair that you used a basic set of tools and I've watched the videos and I saw that, you know, you're using a draw knife, you're using a plane, you're using, you're actually using stuff. I mean, me, I have a belt sander and a chop saw and, you know, I'm completely not efficient, but I'm, you know, I'm a mechanic. Time is of the essence for me. So it's how fast yeah. you can get it. And you are more of the, you know, being a part of your, your work. And I mean, that's amazing. Uh, so you want to elaborate on, on some of the tools you use? I mean, just kind of going back to, again, um, that the, like the kind of the impression that that like living history museum made on me. I've always wanted to live in a world that I could create with tools that I could make myself. And so a while back, I kind of endeavored to make all the tools that I would need to build my own furniture. And so that's kind of what got me into blacksmithing. I mean, that is what got me into blacksmithing. Yeah. And so I made a few draw knives and, you know, axes and um, a fro and like a lot of the tools that you would need to, you know, a knife, a carving knife, a lot of the tools that you need to uh, make a chair. And so... You know, the Democratic chair, you can you, you can make it with an axe, a spoke shave, a draw knife, and a fro. And then you carve out the seat with a tool called a travisher, which is basically like a curved. It's like a mix between a, a, a spoke shave and a draw knife, kind of. And all of those tools are tools that I know how to make, and that's pretty cool. So um, as soon as I kind of get set up to make stuff again, I want to finish rounding out my toolkit of tools that I made and build a chair entirely with the tools that I made. Yeah. You use any power tools though? Uh, not for the chairs necessarily. Well, I mean, you can, you can hurry the process of stock removal for the chairs down by using a lathe. Yeah. Um, Less you know, you don't have to. <laughs> exactly. I, I actually, well, here's the thing. I'm also extremely competitive and I have started like competitively like timing myself and timing other people doing certain tasks. So specifically with the lathe, a professional, like the guy who taught me how to make chairs, Greg Pennington, he told me that he could turn the legs. They're called double bobbin. He told me he could turn double bobbin legs in like three minutes and some seconds. And I like the first time I tried it, I was, it was like, you know, 15 minutes. I was like, I've got to get this down by the end of that. Like I spent like a week trying to turn it down. Um, no pun intended, actually pun intended. (laughs) And I got it down to like six minutes, but this last on the democratic chair, I got it down to like four minutes and some seconds. And I was like, boom, uh, this is great. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that plays into my, my industry. I mean, we're given a, we're given a task and the the manufacturer says, you know, takes you, it should take you eight hours to do it. And for, you know, a, a kid that, that tries to, you know, perfect it, I always want to be below the time, but a lot of times I find that, you know, thinking, recreating it instead of following the, the plan and, and trying to, 
not necessarily cut corners, but find a new way to do it and, and substantially beat the time is, has, has kind of kept me, um, you know, loving, loving my trade. I mean, a lot of times it fails, but, um, it's definitely one of those things that, you know, that competitive nature has, has kind of kept me going all these years and in my trade. So it's, that's cool to see that, you know, that you do find a little bit of competition in, in what you do day to day. Oh yeah. It definitely keeps the wheels turning. But in answer to your question about power tools, though, I am in by no means like against power tools. The thing is, if I had been introduced to power tools before hand tools, I may never have actually gotten into hand tools because yeah. I do love accomplishing things quickly. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not by any means a purist or anything else. I think a lot of people that like followed me early on thought that I was because I basically only showed hand tools. But literally it was because the only tools that I could afford to buy were an antique Stanley hand plane and a hand saw. Like these other things I like hadn't built up my tool collection to a point that I could afford to buy those other things more by necessity than, than purity by any means. But I mean, even now um, I was just talking with one of my, with one of my friends today about like my long-term strategy and um, as far as like creating educational content. And one of the, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is showing people how to do things like, you know, how to do things, you know, with a full machine shop, whether it be, you know, with the blacksmithing stuff, using all the power equipment that's available and also being able to show it just completely by hand. And there's a lot of skill that goes into both of those things. And some of that I possess and some of I don't, but, um, like with, you know, I, I did a video series a while back on a, a whiskey cabinet yeah. and I showed, I showed a lot of the processes, both the power way and the hand way to do all of the different joints. And yeah. I think that's really important for people because there are people that are staunchly power and there are people that either can't afford power tools, are afraid to use power tools, or just want to know how to do it by hand. Which I have seen your whiskey cabinet. Actually, a few people have replicated it and they are on the internet. And I think it's it's awesome. I've I've seen a few people actually do your design, which is amazing. Yeah, that's a pretty cool thing. It's like it's pretty rare, honestly. I, I, I like when I'm making videos and stuff, I know that like, you know, the majority of the people that are watching my stuff are probably not hand tool woodworkers or anything else. And I don't ever want to like feel like I'm showing off or anything like that by any means. I more am just really excited to show people how things, you know, would have been done, you know, a period of time ago, but also just the level of craftsmanship that's possible. Cause like, quite frankly, I'm not, I'm not an amazing woodworker. I, I, I have a certain attention to detail and I've practiced a lot of the things that I've read and learned about, but I mean, at the end of the day, I've only been doing this eight years. And so there's only so much you can learn in that much time, especially when you have so many other interests like I do. There's really very little, you know, focused attention that's been spent on it. Yeah. So all that to say, it's possible for anyone who has an iota of an attention span to do any of the stuff that I'm doing. But it's cool because it's, you know, it's a new thing every day and, you know, the, every day is not the same and for people that, you know, always want to change the scenery, it, you know, you, you're never going to get bored. And I think that's you know, a, a, an amazing thing to have is every day is new, you know? Truth. Single thing that changed your career? Uh, getting hired at Pratt um, to run that woodworking program was definitely, I mean, I was grossly, vastly underqualified for that job. 
but they saw something in me and they hired me anyway. And I definitely rose to the challenge and worked my butt off and created a program that I was absolutely so proud of. And then I was able to hand it off to someone I was really proud to hand it off to after, you know, I'd done everything I could do for the program and was ready to launch off on my own. I mean, I always talk about getting uncomfortable. And I think that that is a huge point to be made is that, you know, I am not a public speaker. I've never really recorded myself. I, you know, I'm good with my hands, but then I joined on this podcast and, you know, really now I'm talking to people and, and I'm trying to find my words. And, you know, I think getting uncomfortable will, you know, definitely catapult you to the next level. It's something for me that if I stay mundane, in my daily tasks, I, I, I don't want to do them anymore. So it's, it's always, the, you know, what's going to keep it exciting. And, and I always have a goal to, to work towards, if not, I'll just be lost amongst the masses, you know? Yeah. So I have recently been doing uh, obstacle course races. A buddy of mine uh, had got me into Spartan races and I was kind of at a point where we had two children and we were eating pizza every day and we're like, let's do something. And my buddy's like, you got to do these obstacle course races. And it changed my, my absolute mindset on, you know, the capabilities of my body, especially, you know, now that, that sheer, uh, youth has kind of left and now I actually have to work for things, but I, I been doing Spartan races, which are amazing and, and doing things that I never thought I could do. And even being in the military, I, I've actually, was more physically fit now than I than I was when I left boot camp, which is which is something to say. But what's your release what, other than work? What do you do? I mean, I spend a lot of my time working, but well, I mean, first of all, I have a 1953 Chevy that I'm restoring, and that's really fun. But it's also kind of slow and tedious because it's also a pretty expensive project, so I have to kind of like do projects a little far and few between. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I've been. I got this golf cart. I traded my truck for it, and I got a golf cart. And I have been like just doing these stupid resto mods on it and I'm <laughs> having a blast. Actually, I just got like earlier today, I got a, uh, a package in the mail that I'd ordered. It's a 150 decibel train horn <laughs> and I'm going to put it on the golf cart. Pneumatic, obviously. It is pneumatic, but it, but it has its own included compressor. So, okay. and that runs off of a 12 volt battery. And so um, my golf cart is run on six 12 volt batteries. So oh, solid. So uh, you've probably heard in prior episodes that I am a GM guy or Chevy guy through and through. Cause otherwise I'd have to hang up right now. <laughs> so is the 53 your daily driver? Uh, it will be when it drives daily. That's amazing. I mean, I mean, so that's a that's a column shift Chevy. Uh, yeah, it's three on the tree. Nice. It was it was funny when I got into the industry, learning out how to. And so I was, you know, grew up on a standard shift. But you know, my dad had like a Saturn and uh, GM, by the way. So I never strayed, but um, nice. <laughs> never drove a column shift. And that's that's interesting. It's you know. Three speeds. That's it. My, I actually also restored a Ford Mustang. Don't kill me. A '64 coupe, and it was that was my first project. And I actually did that one in, in honor of my grandpa. He was a Ford guy. That was my first three three speed, but it was ridiculous. Like I had never. First of all, I'd never driven a stick before, so I learned yes. how to drive stick 
on that car that I was working on myself. So half the time I was like, well, am I shifting wrong or is there something like gravely wrong with the car? <laughs> Who knows? Let's find out. But yeah, like with the, with this, with the Chevy truck, I had to, I, I like bought all the vintage manuals and stuff. Yep. And when I was first learning how to drive it, I had the manual sitting with the little diagram open next to me for like a month because I kept being like, Oh wait, where is it? <laughs> Yeah, because it's not written on it. Well, thanks for being on the show. Uh, it was a pleasure. I, I love getting, you know, down and dirty with with uh, everything that you do. And, and, you know, hats off to you. I don't have a green thumb by any means. I think I killed sunflowers the other day. I just wanted to give you the opportunity now to, you know, have any final words or thoughts, uh, address the audience and, and uh, let us know. One of my favorite phrases is, dirty hands, clean money. There you go. Well, anyway, thank you for your time. and uh, Yeah, brother, thanks for having me. 